You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event with Nian van Mai. Nian van Mai grew up in the shadow of the Vietnam War, seeing people with missing limbs, with severe PTSD, and mothers who had lost their children. The war, the land reforms, and the colonization period before that has all left deep wounds in many people and torn families apart. It was a history that was difficult to talk about. But Nian Fan found she could write about it. Already an accomplished poet, published in Vietnamese, she wrote The Mountains Sing as her first novel and her first book written in English. The novel offers a child's perspective on the war through the girl Wung, who stays with her grandmother, Dieu Lan, and listens to her stories about what her family has experienced over the decades. In a lyrical language and with a vivid imagery, Nian Phan explores Vietnam's history, along with big themes such as memory and the possibility of reconciliation. The Mountain Sing has met great critical acclaim across the world, and I'm very happy to say that it is now also available in Norwegian, translated by Lena Stokset. Nian Phan Mai has written poetry, short stories, and books for children, as well as The Mountain Sing and the novel Dusk Child, published in English only earlier this year or last year, yeah. And to speak with Nian Fan here tonight, we're lucky to have with us Yukiko Duke, a translator, critic, and artistic advisor for the Norwegian Festival of Literature. So please give them both a warm welcome. Good evening, everyone. So wonderful to see so many people here. And good evening to you, in my... Hi, um, Yukiko. Great to see you again. We met each other in... Um, the Gothenburg. Book Fair of Gothenburg. Yes. About a week ago, is it? Yeah, just a few days ago, mm-hmm. and it was great. Hi, everyone. I want to say thank you. Actually... I'm so moved to see a full house. I expected like four or five people <laughs> coming all the way from Vietnam. You know, um, Vietnamese writers rarely have the chance to pub- be published internationally. And to be here um, in your company is just such a great honor. Um, yeah, I look forward to a great time tonight. So thank you so much. Um, yeah. Let's give her one more welcome applause. <laughs> And I think I speak for everyone in this room when I say we are so happy to have you. And it's wonderful to see you here. Now, we are going to talk about Fjellene Singer, which is your first book in Norwegian translation. Uh, Translation, as Åshild mentioned, made beautifully by Lena Stokset. And uh, this is a multi-generational tale about the Tran family, and we're going to get back to the book and talk more about it. But actually, you didn't start out like a novelist, you started as a poet. And I think for everyone who's read the book, this is very obvious, because the lyrical language is the language, and the exactness of the language is the language of a poet. So, if possible, could I ask you to read a poem for us? Should I do that? <laughs> of course you shall. <laughs> Thank you, Yukiko. It's a great honor to be having a conversation with you today in this beautiful house of literature. Um, so The Mountain Sing is um, a novel that I wrote for my two grandmothers who had died before I was born. Um, one due to um, the, uh, the great hunger that killed uh, nearly two million Vietnamese. And my grandma died together with her brother, and her youngest son. And we did not find her grave for many, many years. So uh, my aunt actually went to a fortune teller 
to ask uh, for the graves of of her and the fortune teller told her so so she went and to the rice field and followed the instruction and found three sets of graves and the only thing that identified my grandma was that the the person who had buried her had had told my aunt that um, he was too weak during the great hunger to make a gravestone so he put a brick atop my grandma's head as a marking and when my grand uh, when my aunt dug up the patch of, of rice field she found three sets of, of bones and one had a brick above her head so hmm. I went back to my uh, father's village before my father did so I imagine my father was there with me so I wrote this poem the poem I can't yet name My hands lift high a bowl of rice, the seeds harvested in the field when my grandmother was laid to rest. Each rice seed tastes sweet as the sound of lullaby from the grandmother I never knew. I imagine her soft face as they laid her down into the earth. Her clothes battered, her skin stuck to her bones. In the great hunger of 1945, my village was starved for graves to bury all the dead. Nobody could find my grandmother's grave, so my father tasted bitter rice for 65 years. After 65 years of searching, spirits of my ancestors led my father and me to my grandmother's grave. I heard my father call mum for the first time. The rice field behind his back trembled. My feet clung to the mud. I listened in the burning incense how my grandmother's soul spread, joining the earth, taking roots in the field where she quietly sang lullabies, calling the rice plants to blossom. Lifting the bowl of rice in my hands, I count every seed, each one glistening with the sweat of my ancestors, their backs bent in the rice fields, the fragrance of my grandmother's lullaby, alive in each one. Thank you. You know, so... Um, it was uh, really painful for my father not to have found... Uh, his uh, his mother's grave for so long because the Vietnamese culture we believe that if a person dies away from home um, without the, the uh, relatives knowing where the grave is the person would become a wandering ghost so if we find the grave we go there and burn incense the the dead people can follow the fragrance of the incense and return home so it was healing for my father to to find the grave of his mom for so long and uh, as a child growing up I, i i was really jealous of my friends who had grandmothers to tell them stories so i i went to their homes and i listened to their grandmothers and i i, I told myself one day i needed to, i would need to write a, a novel with a grandmother in it To be able to have a grandma. So thank you for my, reading my book because you keep my grandmothers alive by reading The Mountain Sing. Thank you. We will talk more about your grandmothers a little bit later. But first of all, let's talk about The Secrets of Hua Sen. Hmm. Please read it. This is a beautiful, beautiful collection of poems. And... It's also an extraordinary piece of work as it is. It's your poems mm. and they're translated by you, but also by a Vietnam veteran who is a poet in his own right, Mr. Bruce Weigel. And this must have been quite a project. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, so, um, yeah, Bruce Weigel is an amazing poet and this this. I mean, talking about the power of literature, this is such an amazing thing that happened because like uh, growing up uh, in Vietnam, you know, I was told that American soldiers were killer, killing machines. They didn't have, you know, feelings. But when I started working with veterans, I had, I, 
I saw so much of their pain and suffering, so I started to translate their poetry, and I facilitated for the 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 return of many veterans to Vietnam. I um, translated for their reunions with their former enemies, and some of the most beautiful moments uh, I witnessed was actually, you know, uh, reunions of uh, Vietnamese and American veterans together who were former enemies. They were reading poetry to each other, and I translated for them, and we cried so much together. So, um, so... The, the poets, the American poets were like, you translate a lot of Vietnamese poets because I translated, you know, Vietnamese and Americans and brought them together. And then they said, what about your own poetry? So that was, uh, you know, like two years after I had been doing the, the translation work. So then I thought, okay, I need to translate my own poetry. Then I, I started doing this crazy project of translating my own poetry using the Vietnamese English Dictionary. And then uh, Bruce Weigel helped me. And Bruce Weigel is an award-winning American poet who um, went to Vietnam as an 18-year-old man. And actually, he said, um, so he fought in Quang Chi, one of the, the fiercest battlefields, and he got injured. He still has, a, you know, like um, he was badly injured in his head. So like a, a piece of his skull is still missing. And um, but he said the war robbed his youth, but gave him his voice. So when he went back to the uh, the, the U.S., he wrote poetry to uh, to. Um, to protest the war in Vietnam. Uh, so he, he wrote about the horror of the war, uh, about the children, about the women who were like uh, being injured or killed by the war. And I was so moved uh, by, by, uh, by, you know, by his poetry. So um, actually, so um, I translated quite a few of his poems and, and traveled to Vietnam around with him in Vietnam. And we also did poetry readings in the U.S. with my poetry collection. Um, so it has been a miracle, actually. And such a beautiful project. And this is one of these huge projects, I think, that really shows us what literature can do mm. in uniting people, even though there's so much mm -hmm. between them, yes. so much sorrow and so much misery and mm. so much of suffering. Yeah, I mean, that's, mm. that's the reason why I had to write The Mountain Sing. Mm. Uh, you know, I was born in the north of Vietnam and grew up in the south of Vietnam. And I, uh, I remember when in the north, you know, my village was emptied of, of men. Uh, who had gone to the battlefield and few came back. And then, you know, I kept seeing the women who were waiting for the return of their loved ones. They were standing on the dike, the highest point of our village, to look out to the road that would lead to our village from the town. They were waiting every day, every day. And growing up, you know, I was reading literature and I didn't see them in the books that I read, these, these waiting women. So I told myself I had to write a book that documented experiences of the women, of the children who were affected by war. And when I went to South Vietnam, you know, I grew up in Bạc Liêu in South Vietnam, I also saw a lot of waiting women, uh, women who were waiting for the men who had been imprisoned in re-education camps, men who had fought alongside with the Americans, um, and also men who did not come back from the war and one day you know I was walking to school I think I was um, I was in fourth grade at that time I I was walking to school one day when I saw a commotion ahead of me and I ran I, I ran towards it and it was you know there was a crowd of people under the tree and um, from a tree there was a body of a woman she had been waiting for so many years for her two sons to return from the war. She waited every day with hope, and when hope ran out, she decided, you know, she decided to end her life. And, you know, it was so horrible that there were some moments that I stood on my village road and I thought the human race would not be so stupid as to wage another war. <laughs> Just look at this. <laughs> Just look at the horrible things we do to each other. Can't we learn from this? And as a child, I told myself, I was so sure there would not be any single war after the Vietnam War. I was so sure. You know, I grew up eating fish that was deformed because of Agent Orange. 
you know, in South Vietnam, there was a lot of spraying. And only later, I learned that our ponds and, and rivers were, were, you know, poisoned by this chemical that was sprayed during the war. So, you know, um, so I used to, to work uh, as a volunteer in orphanages. And if you, you, you know, visit Vietnam, there are so many orphan, orphanages where there are children who, who don't have arms and legs and body parts uh, because, you know, their genes are affected by, by Agent Orange. And I wrote on a, for the New York Times, America, don't forget about the victims of Agent Orange. Mm-hmm. There are still millions of people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia who are living with the consequences of Agent Orange. And they have not received any support from companies who reaped so much, millions, millions of dollars from the profit Mm. they made from the sale of Agent Orange. And in the U.S., it has been acknowledged through research that, you know, Agent Orange is detrimental to human health. And uh, American veterans actually get compensation uh, for, uh, you know, if they were exposed to Agent Orange and uh, they, they, you know, like the health care is taken care of and no compensation is adequate, but they acknowledge, whereas in Vietnam, so many innocent victims um, are still suffering from the consequences of Agent Orange. So I write about Agent Orange in this book. In this book, there is Uncle Dad, uh, one of the characters who goes through the war. And actually, during the war, soldiers from North Vietnam had to walk through forests to get to South Vietnam in, to join the battlefields. And they walked for months, you know. And I interviewed many veterans who, who walked like that. And one of them told me, he's actually our neighbor, and he actually he died from cancer, so I think from Agent Orange. He told me when he was walking, you know, it took him months to walk from north to south only with backpacks and, you know, rucksack and his weapons and some food. And he said that when when the airplane started spraying this kind of liquid, he could see that or some plants, butterflies were actually dropping down, you know, with the spraying. <laughs> But his, uh, his, uh, his commander told, told him to put the handkerchief, uh, to pee onto the handkerchief and put the handkerchief against his nose and kept walking. Uh, so, you know, I documented the impact of Agent Orange in this novel because I think this is the, uh, an atrocity that we should not forget. And it's, it happened so recently in Vietnam. And I think we move on with other wars. We forget about what happened. And, you know, it's not just the humans, but, you know, nature in Vietnam is hugely devastated by the bombings. Um, so I work as also as a volunteer for an organization called um, Peace Trees Vietnam. We are uh, removing, you know, unexploded bombs in Vietnam. There's still hundreds of, 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 of thousands of tons of bombs buried in the earth of Vietnam. Every year, there's still uh, people who die trying to work on their land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we're still fighting big bombs very frequently, you know, when people build houses or, or dig up the earth. And, uh, and also, you know, like they are large part of Vietnam, which is still not usable due to unexploded bombs and also Agent Orange. So there's an airport in South Vietnam, Saigon, uh, Bien Hoa, Bien Hoa Airport. So that was used as a, a base for the American airplanes that, that they were transporting Agent Orange, you know, to spray all over Vietnam. So when the planes came back, if whatever left, they dump it onto the ground. So this area close to Ho Chi Minh City is huge and still badly infected by Agent Orange. So people cannot live there. It's a huge area. Mm -hmm. And the American government is trying to clean up the the land. But, you know, like nearly 50 years have passed since the end of the war. And, you know, the work is still going on. So, you know, uh, so much devastation. uh, Because, like, if you go to the war museum in Saigon, you see many pictures that, that, that... of show the forest, how the forest were really like stripped of uh, of all the leaves and many dead trees. So you know the during the war, you know, uh, 
Agent Orange was used by the American side uh, to, um, you know, this chemical would make leaves fall off trees so they would see the enemies better. So when they sprayed millions of tons, you know, so so uh, the 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 impact on human and animals and on on nature is horrendous. Hmm. And unless we talk about it, unless we we write about it, nobody will even think about it because the war ended for so many years ago. Yes, and this is actually, I mean, I think. There's always a void after the war, after mm. a war has ended. I, th- I th- uh, was talking to um, a Finnish writer, Kjell Wester, whom I think many of you know, mm. um, who is a celebrated Nordic writer, but of Finnish descent. And we were discussing how one celebrates Christmas. Mm. This was many years ago. And he said, well, you know, Christmas was all these elderly ladies and I and my brothers. And I said, the elderly ladies? And he said, yeah. Everyone was dead in the war. So it had this grand piano, and on top of the grand piano, you had all these photos of people who had died in the war, mm. all young men who left behind very young wives with children. Mm. So, and he said that in my family, there's a void. People don't talk about the war. Mm. If you try to talk about the war, the elderly women will say, well, let's make a cup of coffee and forget the past because mm. it's so painful. Mm. Mm. And I think maybe you've, you've encountered the same sort of silence mm. concerning the war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, absolutely, you know, like um, I think um, the war, uh, like you said, brought so many uh, deaths and injuries, but also kind of many types of trauma. And, you know, for mm. example, many Vietnamese have had to flee Vietnam because of the war. You know, so many Vietnamese in Norway uh, had to leave Vietnam and no one wants to leave the homeland. So mm. it's, it's a very painful and many Vietnamese actually lost their relatives trying to flee Vietnam. So when I was growing up in, 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 in Bạc Liêu, you know, sometimes my friends would go missing from my class. <laughs> and then we were not allowed to talk about both people fleeing because it was a forbidden topic. We had to ignore it. And then it was very painful with not having the chance to say goodbye to your best friends. And, it's, you know, until today, I don't know what happened to some of my friends at that time. And it, it's really uh, a really painful. You know, we are a country which, ha- which have been torn apart by so many historical events, not just the Vietnam War, but this book, I, I deal with, you know, the French occupation of Vietnam, the Japanese invasion, the great hunger that killed nearly 2 million people, and the land reform that, that tore Vietnam apart. And many Vietnamese actually fled North Vietnam because of the land reform to go to South Vietnam. And then after the war, they, they fled South Vietnam again. So there are m- many, you know... Uh, Relocations, many re- relocations and separations. Uh, so, um, so I mean, I interviewed hundreds of people for 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 this for this novel, and I feel every Vietnamese uh, his, uh, family uh, deserves an epic novel because mm. we have been through so much. So, my my toughest thing it was to kind of how to honor. The, the stories mm. I have witnessed, you know. Um, so so that's why I de- decided to um, create, um, you know, like a large family and each family member is a witness of a historical event. And I wanted to show how history can really impact onto the lives of the people. Um, so, you know, like as a Vietnamese writer to write about Vietnamese history is like walking on thin glass. It's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous also because of censorship in Vietnam. Mm. You know, that's why I had to write this novel in English to have my freedom of creativity. Because in Vietnam, if you were to publish something, the first thing you need to do is to censor yourself, to protect yourself and your family. So, so you know, uh, so that's why um, I had, um, you know, I enjoy the freedom of writing in English, even though it was extremely difficult. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I thought, I thought it was crazy. You know, it was in 2012 that I decided to quit my salary earning job and to stay home and try to be a writer in English. And there were so many moments I doubted myself. 
and and I um, so my husband is here with me. But so uh, he 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 told me, you know, don't worry about <laughs> making money. Create your art. Art is more important than food and water. So, <laughs> you know, I listened to him and an applause for the husband. <laughs> And you know, because like only writers have our names on the fr on the front cover yeah. of our books, but actually, you know, it's teamwork. It's our family. Um, it's our family. It's our publisher. Uh, and I want to 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 thank my amazing publisher Evie, uh, who represents my publisher. Evie, where are you? <laughs> thank you so much. She has been traveling around uh, Norway with me, and you know, like. It's it's a a great honor to be published uh, because like normally our voices have been told by white people who colonize us. If if you go to the library and check out the listing of books about Vietnam in English, most of the writers are, are non-Vietnamese. Uh, you know, so so Vietnamese people are, are like the background to the Western stories. So this book is really my fight against our, for our right to tell our own stories uh, as, as I see them. But how does it feel to write in English then? English it, was, being... it was crazy. Like I was saying, there were so many days that I, that I thought, am I crazy, you know? Mm. I stayed for years to home to write, you know? And not knowing that the book would be published because at that time I had no agent. I had no publisher. So I just... But it was these these people, these characters that kept me going. Mm. I mean, my husband sometimes, he told me this book is going to kill you. Because like <laughs> I went, I went to, I, he went to bed. I was at my writing desk. He woke mm -hmm. up. I was still at my writing desk. Mm -hmm. So he said, did you ever go to sleep? But you know, like I was so compelled about these stories, and I thought, you know, I had to do something to honor these 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 stories, these people mm. who had shared with me their incredible stories. For example, in this book, there's this um, grandma Ziolan who had to abandon her kids in the land reform. You know, the land reform is a historical event that that, that took place in Vietnam in in the fifties, where the communists you know, condemned certain people as rich landowners. And, you know, so they, uh, you know, the towns had to have a quota of how many people to execute. So people were beaten up, were killed. So I heard the story about this woman whose brother and, and father, uh, whose brother and um, uncle were killed. And overnight she had to run away with her children. She was a hard-working landowner, but because she had workers working for them, so she was condemned as an exploiter. So then overnight, you know, she had to, to run away with her many children, and she wanted to get to Hanoi, the capital city. So, But along the way, she did not have food, she did not have money, she did not have help. So she had to leave one child after the next with strangers, begging them to let them, you know, uh, hide them as, as, as a helper so that she could uh, keep them alive. So when I heard this story, I felt, you know, I had to document this type of stories. So it was the characters that kept me, you know, sleepless. Uh, so it took me seven years to write this novel. And, you know, um, so, but I couldn't find an agent. I couldn't find a publisher because I sent to many agents, you know, as a, a writer from Vietnam who had no contacts, uh, no, you know, like people were just like, okay, I, most of the agents in the U.S. Uh, did not respond to me. And those who were kind enough said, oh, your story is too sad. Or, uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't, I can't sell it. I tell you now they're regretting it. <laughs> because this book has been, you know, like translated to 22 languages. So it's incredible. But I mean, but you know, I, th I, I told myself, okay, rejections is something of an everyday life of a writer. I need to believe in myself and my stories. So, okay, I swallowed a bit of rejections and I went on and I wrote my second novel. So my second novel, Das Chai, was published in March this year. And, you know, in Vietnamese, we have this proverb, Trong cái rủi có cây mây. 
good luck hides inside bad luck. The bad luck was that I couldn't find an agent. The good luck was that ignore them. I go on and write another thing without any pressure. So I wrote that guy without much pressure. And now, um, so when I had the you know like the the very rough draft of that guy, and then I found an agent, and then it was published. So it was great because then you know. Now writing the third book is more difficult because mm-hmm. I know people have expectations. <laughs> There's more pressure, but writing a new book is like starting all over again. It's like learning to walk again, and and like my new novel is different than the first one because in the new novel, you know, I'm sometimes I'm really crazy. I want to do things different. So in my second novel, I write in the voice of an American man. You know, mm. American men have written in the voices of Vietnamese women all the time. <laughs> so I told myself I have to do the reverse to them <laughs> to see how it feels, and it felt empowering. I really enjoyed it, but I couldn't have done that without my years of working with veterans. You know, mm. translating for them. So, so yeah. So each book is like starting, uh, learning how to walk again is really mm. difficult. But you're a writer with a mission. You write about the war so that it'll never be forgotten. But Will you continue to write about the war? I mean, do you see a development in yourself as a writer when it comes to themes and when it mm-hmm. comes to what you want to write about? You know, so um, I think even though my two books are set against the backdrop of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. uh, I want to present Vietnam more beyond the war. Vietnam is a country with more than four thousand years of history, so you know uh, the the war is just a small part in this book. So in reading the novel, you will. Taste a lot of delicious Vietnamese food. <laughs> mm-hmm. So actually, I bring into the novel my favorite Vietnamese dishes, those that that I I I uh, ate when I was little. For example, uh, shrimps, tiny shrimps caught from rice fields, cooked with star fruit. Wow! <laughs> and it's like something that I cook very often when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. I bet with you, you don't normally find this. In restaurants, mm-hmm. okay, so you get to taste this in, <laughs> in this novel. And I also, you know, talk a lot about Vietnamese poetry, literature, uh, music, uh, uh, proverbs. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, on a broader perspective, my third novel is um, is beyond the war, so mm-hmm. I I don't set it in the no. war anymore. Mm-hmm. So I also want to, uh, you know, to uh, talk about Vietnam more uh, of Vietnam in the current day. Uh, and the issues that affect us. If we return to this book, it's the frame is a young girl Wong, who is um, taken care of by her grandmother, and she's still very small. And her father and mother and uncles are all in the war, participating to liberate mm-hmm. Vietnam. And there she is with her grandmother, who is a very wise woman who's lived, lived through French occupation, Japanese occupation, the Great Hunger of 1950, uh, of 1945, uh, so much of, of modern Vietnamese history. So after having read this book, you get a great span of Vietnamese contemporary history. And it's so interesting. I mean... I, I'm born in '66, and I was raised by a leftist family. And I remember when I was a child taking part in in the uh, demonstrations to support mm. the FNL movement. Mm. So I still remember, you know, like a little child, I was <laughs> sitting on my father's shoulders, uh. Uh, you know, chanting "U.S. out of Vietnam." And for me, <laughs> reading this book, I got this book from a friend actually, who. Uh who also was in the movement, and he said, this is what it was all about, mm. what we as children didn't know. But thank really. you. It's only um, it's thanks to the support of mm. you, people like you and the fa- your family, that the war ended. Mm. I mean, if, if, if the war didn't end, I might not be here today, uh, you know, because it's, it's just so horrible. Yeah. It's incredibly cruel and also a war that i mean there's so many different wars so mm. many things that the vietnamese people have had to endure and it's all in this book and as you said different parts of the tran family encounter different parts of the hardships that the vietnamese have gone through mm. so in your very lyrical and extremely touching 
um, touching stories. We, we get to know the family, we get to know what is happening, and we get to know very mm. much about Vietnamese history. Mm. Thank you. And, and, and I want to thank my translator, mm. Lena, uh, for, for her great work in, yes. in, in, in translation. I mean, translation is such a tough job, but she did a great job with this. A very good job. I can say the Norwegian translation is better than the Swedish. <laughs> you haven't heard it from me, okay? <laughs> mm. But you, <clears throat> many of your, many of your poems have been also turned into songs. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you know, I I I love poetry mm -hmm. because the the poet Phong Quan, uh, who's very famous in Vietnam, uh, wrote this line: "Có những phút ngã lòng tôi vẫn câu thơ và đứng dậy." During moments of difficulty, I hold on to the verse of poetry to pull myself up. So, you know, uh, during my childhood when we were really poor, not having enough to eat, my mom always fed me poetry. She sang a lot of lullabies to me. And I, I listened to poetry via the public radio broadcast. So actually, I wrote my diaries in poetry mm -hmm. <laughs> as a little girl. <laughs> Imagine how bad it is, <laughs> these poems. But, you know, it was my way of learning to write. So, so you know, uh, so I, I, I started publishing uh, poetry first. And actually, you know, I love poetry so much that I venture into translating poetry. Whenever I, I read a good Vietnamese poem, I started translating it. So I spent years working as a volunteer. I did not get paid a single cent. But I I did it for the love of the language. Mm -hmm. I translated hundreds of poems and, and published them. And then one day I told myself, not many people read poetry nowadays, so I needed to translate a novel. So I was looking for a novel to translate. And then one day I was telling myself, why don't I write this novel myself? <laughs> to save myself the list of the, the, the need for translating. So that began the crazy project of the mountain sea. But actually you started collecting stories yes. very early. Yes. Already yes. as a young girl. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and and you talk about my 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 poems being, you know, written into songs in, in Vietnam. It's it's really amazing because, you know, uh, there's a tradition of of, uh, of really strong connections between poetry and, and music in Vietnam. So a, a lot of, of famous songs in Vietnam have been list, uh, written by from poetry. Uh, so, I, you know, I did not know these musicians. They just read my poetry and then they, they wrote the songs and they contacted me to ask for my permission. So, so it's really fun to see how music can carry the poetry much further. If you look on YouTube, there are several, several stars, I think, Vietnamese song stars that sing your poetry, which is really lovely to see. But um, if you think of, if we think about your, your childhood, you said you, you were born in uh, 73 in the north of Vietnam and your family decided to move to the south. And for a long time you didn't know why they wanted to move, mm. and, but your parents were teachers and farmers at the same time. Mm. And they told you that it was, it was because of better educational possibilities in the south. Mm. But there was also the great hunger as a ghost in the past. Mm. So, you know, when I was six years old, um, my so after the war, the northern government decided to send a lot of teachers to South Vietnam because they wanted to brainwash the, the population, you know, to mm. their kind of thinking. Uh, so uh, they, they replaced the textbooks and they, they sent a lot of teachers to the South. So my, my parents worked as both uh, teachers and farmers. So they, my father was sent to, uh, to Song Bé province first. And he, then he came back a few years later and, and, and he told my mom, in the South, schooling, the weather was better, the schooling was better. And most importantly, uh, students could, uh, could get the chance to study English. Mm. 
Because in the north, we had no chance of studying English, and he saw the English of as the key to the world. So he insisted that my mom uh, moved us to South Vietnam. So when I was six years old, we traveled by train from from Ninh Bình to Bac Liêu. That was the uh, you know I saw I saw Vietnam and how how many you know bomb craters that were, were there you know um, along the train track. So uh, so actually um, it it. I couldn't have been able to ride the mountain sing and dust child without having grown up in both north and south of Vietnam to witness the the sorrow, the trauma that suffered by both sides. Mm-hmm. Because you know the Vietnamese poet Nguyễn Duy wrote this: "Nói cho cùng trong mỗi cuộc chiến tranh, phe nào thắng thì nhân dân đều bại. In the end of each and every war, whoever wins, the people always lose." Mm. Which is absolutely true. And you went to the south, and for quite a time of hardship for your family, you had to work hard, and you yeah. did all kinds of works. Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, um, the situation in the south was um, also very difficult for us. It was during the American trade embargo, and you know, being uh, northerners to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of. Trying to settle in the south was really difficult because, like, people spoke another dialect and we were really different. And also, our neighbors didn't like us because they they saw us, you know, coming from the north, yeah. you know. Also, to take away their jobs and you know, you know, years later, I would understand their reasons. Uh, but it was um, it was tough, and you know, when Vietnam was trying to um, open up. Our um, our economy. My my parents ventured into business, and as as teachers and farmers, they had no idea of doing business. So they lost everything, and they uh, we owned so much money. And I remember the court ordered us to pay twelve percent interest rate on the loan per month. The inflation at the time in Vietnam was really high, so we had to pay 12% inflation, uh, 12% interest rate. So my parents had to sell everything. The debtors came to my house. They took away my radio, my cassette to learn my English. Uh, they took away my bicycle, so I had to walk to school. From then on, I didn't have my bike anymore. Uh, but they they left something really valuable behind. My books. <laughs> They thought <laughs> the books were worthless, but these books were the world to me. So we had a bookcase like that, uh, you know, like that big filled with uh, with secondhand books that uh, my parents had bought, and I I read them until the covers fell off because you know the books really es- helped me escape from the poverty and 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 also like uh, met new people and experienced the world. So. So, so these books really saved me. So I dreamed to be a writer then, uh, you know. So once again, trong cái rủi có cái my good luck hides inside bad luck. I couldn't have become a writer without those difficult days. And, you know, being poor, uh, when I had to sell um, things on the street, I had to work in the rice field every day and sell things on the street, taught me about the, uh, work, my work ethics, you know, mm. um, and and. Teach me how how I must I have to value every chance in life. You know, to have a normal day when you have a roof over your head, when you have enough food to eat, when you don't have to fear that a bomb is going to fall down onto your family home is a greatest blessing. So each day of normal is a day of blessing. So um, so. Yeah, so it has been really lucky that I could achieve my dream of being a writer. But, you know, when I told my family that I wanted to be a writer, they said, no, uh, don't you know what happened to writers in Vietnam? Uh, we have a, a difficult history with writers. So my ma- my parents, you know, worried about me. And my two brothers said, Oh, we don't have enough to eat. You have you should study business <laughs> to have <laughs> parents. What are you going to be a writer? You know what? Are, how are you going to earn a living? So I listened to them. So I um, I took my entrance exam into um, foreign trade university, and uh, so I studied foreign trade, but because I thought you know import and export would earn me a lot of money. <laughs> so then I got a scholarship to Australia, and I. 
I studied business. Uh, I studied my bachelor in business administration. So I went back to Vietnam and I worked as a business person, but I hated it. I hated it because <laughs> like there was so much corruption in mm. Vietnam. You know, you have to bribe people, and I, and and also, um, yeah. So so I was actually one of the first um, investor in the Vietnamese stock market. <laughs> At that time, I was like really good with business. But when I followed my writing dream, I don't want to check no. my bank account. <laughs> I ignore all my finances because it's so stressful. I just want to lose myself into stories. So <laughs> you both did and did not listen to your family because in 1983, a very young girl went secretly to the post office. What did she want to post? <laughs> You have done so much research about me. Thank you. Yeah, in 1983, yes, I went to the post office and I posted uh, my entry for a writing competition. Uh, so it was a national writing uh, competition, uh, you know, and my because my parents didn't like me, you know, being involved in writing, so I did it secretly. And when the announcements, announcement arrived that I had won a prize, Uh, and I had to go to the post office to receive the prize. So so the letter was sent home, and my parents were really surprised. And they said, what? You won the prize? And, um, yeah, so, um, but then they still didn't want me to become a writer then. So I only returned to my writing dream when I was 33 years old. Uh, so at that time, you know, um, so when I met my husband Hans in in Hanoi, I uh, I was working for this, uh, uh, you know, uh, Australian company, an insurance company. So I helped them set up, you know, a joint venture. So I was investing in real estate, in stock market, doing all of these things that Vietnamese love to do. <laughs> and then I met Hans and then we went to Bangladesh because Hans works in development assistance. So he works in normally in poor countries to help with sustainable development. So I went to Bangladesh, a very poor country. And then I got a job working as a librarian in the international, uh, American International School. And so I was surrounded by books and I loved it. And I thought I have to return to this writing dream. So I was reading a lot. I was in charge of ordering books for my library. <laughs> so that was heaven. So I ordered all the books that were banned in Vietnam, you know. Dương Thu Hương, who is like not allowed to be read in Vietnam at that time. I ordered all of her books and the books that I wanted to read. And then um, I caught up with literature. And then after Bangladesh, we went back to Vietnam. And I worked for a Dutch development organization. I was working in communications for them. And every day, I rode my motorbike to work. You know, like being a Vietnamese and being on motorbike, you're at home, you know. And I drove through all the four seasons of Hanoi. And with the wind blowing my hair, I wrote my poetry on my motorbike, which I don't advise you to do. <laughs> First of all, it's dangerous. And secondly, it's expensive because the police find me many times for, <laughs> for not indicating when I turn on for crossing the red light. So it was a very expensive habit. Uh, but But um, Hanoi is really beautiful. So I wrote a lot of my first poems on my motorbike. So, you know, I, I composed it when I was on a motorbike. Because being on a motorbike is different than being in a car because you are part of the daily life, you know. Mm. There were many street sellers who, who sing, they sing songs. And you are part of, of, of their daily life. And, and then I absorb these stories. So I would have my idea when I go to work. So that first I, I write. So I had, uh, I kept a blog at that time. I didn't think I would publish. And suddenly I had so many followers with mm -hmm. my poetry blogs. And then one of the followers is a well-known Vietnamese uh, photographer, Thai Fien, and he messaged me. He said, you should po publish your poems. I, I know a publisher. And he introduced me and my poetry got published. And this is how it started <laughs> on a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> We're very happy that he... He told you that you had to be published because that was the very beginning of everything. Yes. And now we have Fjellene in Norwegian and hopefully we'll have Dust Child soon as well. We could go on and listen to you for ever, but actually our time is up.
Oh. But you wanted to do something oh. to give the audience a special treat. Should I read or should I sing? Sing. sing. <laughs> I shouldn't have asked, right? Um, so, um, actually, I don't normally sing in front of Vietnamese people because I'm not a good singer. Um, but um, this is a thank you song for the audience. Um, so, um, I grew up in... Uh, so, in my second novel, I write about vòng cổ music. This is like traditional Vietnamese opera that is the daily, uh, the, the normal uh, Vietnamese live music uh, that we compose about, you know, um, our daily life. So this song is uh, for you, my readers. I hope I can sing it. Oh, and you need to follow the Vietnamese tradition. In the middle of the song, when I give you uh, uh, a sign, you need to clap. Even though I'm not a good singer, but this is the tradition. And then I would continue to sing. Can we clap anyway? Or is it some sort of pattern that we have to just, follow? Just one in the middle. Okay. I will give a sign. Bạn đọc ơi, hôm nay các bạn đã về đây đoàn tu Nhìn những gương mặt thân quen tôi như thấy mình mắc nở ấn tình từ thuở con thơ tôi đã tự nhủ mình rằng một ngày tôi sẽ viết nên những câu chuyện về quê hương xứ sở trong có có những người như bạn như tôi họ cũng thân thang thăm thẳm những nụ cười rồi rơi nước mắt trước tận cùng đau khổ bạn đọc ơi suốt đời tôi mắc nợ những ân tình tôi mãi mãi khắc ghi oh my beloved readers Today you gather, looking at your compassionate faces, I see light, and that I see I owe you oceans of debt. From my childhood, I wanted to write about my homeland, about people like you and me. Their lives can be filled with laughter, yet sorrow also brings them tears. Oh, my beloved readers, I owe you until the end of my life. Your compassion, I carry it with me always. Thank you, Wonder Woman. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.